0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, explore the inspiration behind two very different exhibitions at the Tucson Desert Art Museum an essay about the movement for black lives and how people of color must face their own mortality in ways that others do not. And another example of the surreal zaniness of the Scamp Radio Half Hour. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The Tucson Desert Art Museum on East Tanque Verde Road reopened at the beginning of September with limited hours and private tours for the safety of its visitors. Next, we'll explore two exhibitions currently on display, each portraying experiences that are seldom reflected in the mainstream. The first is Buffalo Soldiers, the 10th Cavalry Regiment, told through the art of David Laughlin. Born in Missouri in 1928, Laughlin became an illustrator, designer, and watercolor teacher when he returned from the Korean War. He moved to Tucson in 1977. His body of work includes a series of paintings focused on the all black cavalry and infantry units known as the Buffalo Soldiers. Sadly, Laughlin died just last week at age 92 after an illness. His passing was on the night before. I had scheduled an interview about his work with Dr. Michael Ings. Ings is a cultural historian and published author on the subject of the Buffalo Soldiers. He's also an art enthusiast who knew David Laughlin, and he had much to say about the importance and beauty of Laughlin's art.
1: When he moved here to Arizona, he was looking for subject matter that would help him portray the spiritual beauty of the desert, and the Buffalo Soldiers are such a good subject matter for that because you can give the beautiful ecology of the state, the mountains, the desert, a certain perspective. It's like you know, putting a person in a picture gives the rest of the picture a perspective because the viewer can now see how vast the space is. If you look at a lot of um, artists who portrayed the Buffalo Soldiers, like Remington, for example, they really didn't paint landscaping. It was horses and men, period. And David was able to capture that along with the lighting. You really know an artist loves the West by the way they capture the light. And he used the characters, the buffalo soldiers, as a way of capturing the light, the vegetation, the distance, the vastness, the heat. You could feel it in his paintings and his watercolors.
0: Tell us something about the story of the Buffalo Soldiers. Why is it an important one coming so soon after the era of slavery? How does this represent how African-American men were able to make a different kind of contribution and be seen in a different way?
1: What had happened is in 1866, uh, because of the uh, slaughter of so many men, both African-American and Anglo, during the Civil War, um, and many of them had come from the West. Native peoples had basically um, taken over again. And so, in order to get settlement to renew itself, uh, they figured they needed more bodies. And so, in 1866, the uh, commanding general of the army, Sherman, and uh, the president at the time, Grant, uh, decided that they would use some of the soldiers who had fought in the Civil War of African descent as people to go west and settle those areas, they had six black units formed. They recruited out of Fort Leavenworth, Kansas and New Orleans. They reduced the six units down to four, the 9th and 10th Cavalry and the 24th and 25th Infantry. And they were sent west. And they probably spent time Uh, subduing the Native Americans in almost every major state of the West.
0: What would you say is something that's different about the way that the men of the 9th and 10th Cavalry and the infantry regiments that you mentioned um, handled conflict with Native Americans compared to how the White Army dealt with things? Is there a reason why these men were given this job other than it was a job that others did not want to do?
1: I think there was a slight difference simply because they were both um, people of color, I mean, the reason the Buffalo Soldiers are called Buffalo Soldiers is because of the grudging respect they were given by Native American tribes that they actually fought. Robert Shelton, in one of his articles on the Buffalo Soldiers, were a professor who has uh, bought into the whole concept that the Native Americans had a great deal of respect and loved the Buffalo Soldiers hmm. were up at Wounded Knee. And this professor was touring a group of tourists around Wounded me, and this Native American woman came down and said, we don't want you here. We don't respect you for what you did to us. And though the Buffalo Soldiers weren't involved in the massacre, they were came in later to clean up. And as a consequence, their role oftentimes was to come in afterwards and take care of business. So here in Arizona, the story is the same. They weren't here During the Apache Wars, they didn't come until probably 1882 after the Indian Wars were pretty much over. So their role was to keep the Apache on San Carlos Reservation. Uh, Their people were starving because some of the unscrupulous people in the Indian Bureau were skimming the food they were supposed to receive off the top. They would have to escape and uh, ride into Mexico and, and hunt. And the Buffalo Soldiers' job was basically to hunt them down and take them back to San Carlos. So there's no love lost between the Buffalo Soldiers and Native Americans.
0: Share with us something about how it felt for you when you first visited the exhibit that's at the Tucson Desert Art Museum and saw the paintings of David Laughlin hanging there. You also mentioned to me, you feel that this exhibit happening at this time is part of a of a change that's that's coming across as part of a renaissance for Black creatives in Tucson and for our community here.
1: Well, my feeling when I went to the Desert Arts Museum was as if I was... Uh, going through my life because my sister-in-law lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico for 30 years. She's my wife's twin sister. And so we just fell along with Western art just going to visit her. Because they're twins, we went as often as possible because twins like to be together. (laughs) And when I walk into the Desert Arts Museum, I felt like I was on Canyon Road in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I felt I was in this middle of this wonderful arts community that uh, represents my culture as well as other cultures especially people of color. But what's happened here in Tucson, to, to answer the other part of your question, is that back in 2018, uh, the Tucson Museum of Art brought in a uh, exhibit called 30 Americans. It's the first time in their 95-year history that they had had an exhibit solely dedicated to African-American artists. And then overlapping with that was an exhibit at the University of Arizona. What color is black when it's burned? which was more of a historical display of pictures of African-Americans who may have been here during the early 1700s. And as a volunteer at the Presidio, uh, doing African-American history and stories from the founding of Tucson in 1775, when four of the 27 soldiers who found the city of Tucson were of African descent, we have had a very special place in this part. And now for these art exhibits, to be occurring on such a regular basis, you're seeing black people depicted. And that's very, very encouraging and exciting.
0: Once again, thank you so much.
1: I really appreciate being able to help out in this way to the uh, Laughlin family, especially in their time of grief. He has just passed away and that we've lost a, a wonderful, wonderful spirit in our community.
0: The multimedia work of Canadian artist Jamie Black is striking and poignant and crosses borders with abandon. Black began the Red Dress Project in the year 2000 to recognize the many injustices that surround missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls across North America. She's quoted as saying that the project's empty red dresses evoke the presence of these women by marking their absence. Statistics cite that between 1980 and 2012 in Canada, Indigenous women represented 16% of all female homicides, even though they only make up 4% of the population. The Urban Indian Health Institute reports Arizona has the third highest number of cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in the United States. Jamie Black spoke to me from her home in Manitoba, Canada.
2: Well I guess I really wanted to start this work when um, I started learning more about my own Indigenous heritage. Like later in my life I was around a teenager when I found out kind of more substantially a lot of my family history and so I really kind of started moving in that direction of, of relearning a lot of the culture and, you know, and spending time with my grandfather and things like that. Um, when he passed away, I really felt like in my family, it was, you know, it was my turn to kind of step up and start kind of modeling a lot of the culture. And it wasn't long after he passed away that I ended up working on the red dress project and came up with it. And, um, you know, it was inspired by a lot of other Indigenous women that I was working with at the time, and Indigenous artists, and also, you know, work that was happening on the ground and the grassroots, uh, you know, kind of struggles that people were going through, um, you know, the, the women really leading a lot of the resistance against the colonial systems that we're living in and, and just kind of learning about that and sort of finding myself on the fringes of those groups as well and working with them really inspired this work. And Also seeing, you know, families and gathering, you know, kind of trying to find their loved ones was really an eye-opener for me as something, you know, like clearly there was something there that needed um, support. And, you know, I, I really made this work as a way of supporting families and in their struggles.
0: Yeah, because the missing part of this can't be overlooked. The fact that there are open cases related to so many of these incidents of women and girls going missing in Canada and Mm -hmm. the United States. The statistics for Canada are a lot easier to find. How important was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau coming out and, and making statements about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls? And how did that coincide with the timeline of the Red Dress Project?
2: Um, Well, I did start this project about 10 years ago and um, I feel like Indigenous women and communities have really been on the front lines fighting against colonialism for a very long time before I began this work. But, you know, I guess my sort of thoughts about government, um, you know, kind of reconciling with Indigenous people are such that I really feel like the people who created the issues that we're seeing today are not going to be the ones to solve them is really sort of how I look at it. Um, I really think it's up to us as communities and you know the public and people on the ground to um come together and and make change. I haven't seen a lot of policy change. I mean, there are women working in in government there are indigenous women working in government, but it's a slow struggle to get um, those voices heard. You know I hope work like this like that we do on the ground like artwork and public works like this can actually make the change that we're looking for.
0: One thing I think that is clear to people living in the United States is that the messaging surrounding the Native American community is controlled by the media, not by the people themselves. And (laughs) therefore, the stories center around domestic violence, alcoholism, even stray dogs on the reservation. That's going to get a headline before a positive story gets a headline. Of course. So, what would you say that you have been able to do in the course of this project to help to compel a better narrative and a stronger narrative for Indigenous people?
2: When I do the work, I invite people from wherever I'm doing an exhibition. um, You know, community leaders, academics, and people working in the communities themselves to be able to speak out about what they're facing in their own communities as well. So. It really gives those voices a place to be heard, and a space to be heard. So I think it provides that alternative narrative to what we're sort of hearing all the time in the media. You know, people often ask me, like, why Indigenous communities are facing this much violence, and you're talking about alcoholism and other things that we see in print media around Indigenous people, and these narratives that are really toxic and dangerous. The way I look at it, the history of colonialism in both Canada and the United States has given rise to this violent relationship between settlers and Indigenous people Since basically since settlers came over to North America, and that relationship hasn't changed. You know, the land has been taken. Um, communities were forced to stop living the way they were living. They were forced to go to residential schools. They were forced to give up their culture and their language. And, um, you know, Indigenous people have been struggling and fighting against these systems that are of oppression for a very long time. And so, you know, the only way that it will end is if we address this ongoing violent relationship between settler and Indigenous people.
0: What's a moment that you can share with us, Jamie, when the energy that you put into this project came back to you in some way?
2: Of course, it's really, really hard to talk about the trauma people are facing, but it's also extremely amazing to see, um, you know, the amount of people who come together to make this happen who are really dedicated to changing things. One of the things that just that was sort of like on a personal level had happened during one of the shows was I was um, doing a tour of the red dresses in the very first exhibition at the University of Winnipeg in 2010, There was a police officer on the tour and he was non-Indigenous and he was, you know, intimidating and I didn't know if anything would land on him as far as what what I was talking about, but at the end of the tour, he came up to me and he shook my hand and he had tears in his eyes and he said he goes to work every day and he sees pages of print of, like, this person's hurt or, like, there's this many women missing and, and it just looks like a it's just on a piece of paper and it just doesn't hit home in the same way. And he said that just seeing those dresses and hearing what's going on really
1: changed his perspective.
2: You know, art can be a really powerful way for people to be affected emotionally by what's going on where otherwise they may not. So um, that was a really powerful moment for me.
0: Thanks to my guests, historian Dr. Michael Eings, and multimedia artist Jamie Black. Both exhibitions, Buffalo Soldiers, the 10th Cavalry Regiment, told through the art of David Laughlin, and Jamie Black's Red Dress Project are at the Tucson Desert Art Museum through December 27th. You can schedule a private tour online at tucsondart.org. In August, people around the world were saddened to learn of the death of actor Chadwick Boseman. News of his passing led to and Andres Portela to consider the idea of mortality. Knowing that, as Americans, we're all experiencing the threat of COVID-19, he asked, how do black Americans navigate conversations concerning mortality around policing and COVID-19? when every time the argument for humanity gets changed to something less relevant. Portella was moved to write this essay last week after a Black Lives Matter mural in downtown Tucson was defaced with a line of blue paint. Andres Portela is an independent contributor to this show, and his commentary does not reflect the opinions of
3: Arizona public media or the city of Tucson. Mortality. Mortality is such a fickle beast. Mortality is supposed to be the equalizer. Mortality isn't aspirational. It's something we all achieve. It's one of the fears we all dream about. Mortality is a human right, right? There's a movement going on outside your door, and its backbone is the most basic ask. To acknowledge mortality. The movement for black lives has charged the batteries of millions of people to hit the streets and begin to demand more demand one of the central tenets of the American dream, life, liberty, and the pursuit. Much like the sun rises in the morning, the counterarguments came from left and right. Why can't we just say all lives matter? Blue lives matter. This is just the media race baiting. Why does everything have to be about race? Well, why do they have to riot? Racism doesn't exist, we have a black president. People just love being victims. This is Arizona, we don't have those issues. If they would have just complied, they would still be alive and we wouldn't be doing all of this. In Arizona, we recognize black life by painting murals and having conversations about the humanity of black life while finally beginning to acknowledge racial inequality, equity and health disparities. And just when progress begins, the counter arguments began to flood our already flooded streets as a community We can talk about how far we have come and how people feel about progressive policing, but what is the underlying issue here? What is the most basic ask? The most basic ask is for you to acknowledge my humanity by saying it out loud. Acknowledge that I have just as much of a right to mortality as you. There is an international movement going on outside your door, and you can't paint a blue line over it. You can't all lives matter it, unless you're saying all black lives. It is about race, and will always be about race until we acknowledge that race has historically and continually made opportunity to the American experience a crawl for some Americans. And when in America's history have riots not been a part of protest? Was it the Revolutionary War? Because I think a riot started it all. Was it the 1919 Red Summer? which erased whole black populations because black soldiers represented a potential end to the idea of Jim Crow and racial subordination? To be a victim or have a victim mindset, you would have to acknowledge that my humanity, my mortality costs just as much as yours. And about the black president, I'm surprised some people remember him. I remember hearing, not my president, and he's not American, because there is no way a black man born in America and dealing with a racial caste system that was built to ensure his failure could be as eloquent and professional as he. He has to be from somewhere else, right? This is Arizona. This is the state that failed to acknowledge Martin Luther King Day, a state that has perfected the incarceration system on a grand scale. A state with multiple Confederate monuments. A state with a capital that refuses to paint Black Lives Matter on the street. A state with a city that painted Black Lives Matter in the street, and then someone painted a blue line through it. Thanks for showing me how you feel about Black life. Thanks for the attempt at changing the conversation.
0: Artist and organizer Andres A. Portella is a senior policy advisor and fellow with Black Futures Lab. You can watch a recent TEDx Tucson talk he gave on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Tucson's Scoundrel and Scamp Theater is celebrating some wildly creative youth who assembled as a virtual team over the summer for a unique radio play camp. Guided by internationally acclaimed playwright and performer Wolf Boart, the kids wrote over a dozen scenes and short plays that were designed to be heard rather than seen. The result is some fast-paced audio entertainment in the spirit of the golden age of radio. We heard the first-ever preview of the Scamp Radio half-hour last week. Now here's some more, showcasing the project's wit and wackiness. There was a Walmart rubbery. I mean, robbery. And Rob Rubbery is the robber. Full details tonight at 6. In other news, there was a car crash on Splat Way. The Ingredients Make It All. Written by Lucy and Scarlett.
4: Hi, Bob, I brought you a cupcake.
3: Thank you so much. This looks really good, but unfortunately, I have to do another show in three minutes.
4: Please, I worked so hard on it. Just try it. Okay. Well, now the narrator is asleep, I can take over the studio, and now I can share my story. Okay, time to start. My name is Amy, and I am here to tell you about something that happened to me and two of my friends. Okay, now for the story. Once upon a time, four years ago, there were three friends. Alex, Moya, and me, Amy. One day, we were cleaning out my parents' attic, and we found a recipe. It says, use with caution.
0: So are we going to try it or what?
4: Oh, why do I have to have a daredevil for a friend? Fine. Is no one else worried about this? Yeah. Nope. Seriously, Seriously, Alex? Alex?
0: It says add to food to make it magical. You guys seriously don't believe this?
4: Yeah, I know what you're thinking. Magic isn't real. That is what we thought, and it did not work out very well. Alex does have a point. Let's try it, okay? Okay, fine. And so we made the recipe and pretty much changed our lives. So, how are we going to test it? I still can't believe we're actually doing this. We could have just told Amy's mom, you know. But would she believe us? We could at least try.
0: And let her take away the fun? (laughs) No way.
4: Oh, dear. What?
0: I say, add it to tonight's ice cream, but don't eat it ourselves. It'll be so funny.
4: <laughs> okay. Oh, no. Okay. And so we did. <laughs> Despite Moya's protesting, the ice cream was super duper cold. So it had some crazy effects. Everyone was frozen for several minutes. And so we, oh no, he's waking up. Oh, so stay tuned next week for the rest of my story. If, if I come. Oh oh no! My show!
0: Mm -hmm.
4: Breaking news. There's been another robbery. Where? At the Meat Bits factory. By who? Matt Betts. He robbed the Meat Bits from the manager, Max Schlitz.
0: So, Matt Betts robbed Meat Bits from Max Schlitz?
4: That's right, Mark.
0: Oh, remarkable, Maddie. Well, that's all the time we have for today. From all of us at AUBT, goodbye and good night. That was an excerpt from the Scamp Radio Half Hour, created during a two-week virtual class offered to kids by the Scoundrel and Scamp Theater, directed by Wolf Boart with technical direction from Tiffer Hill. The writers, aged from 9 to 16, were Lucy, Axel, Henry, Dylan, Thomas, Max, Isis, Scarlett, willow and sebastian these students will get to hear the world premiere of their creativity for the first time in an online event on saturday october 10th and you're invited to join in the fun scoundrelandscamp.org has the information thank you for listening to arizona spotlight this show originates from the azpm radio studios A ZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.